The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion hosted by Michael Guyot. My name is Michael Guyot. I'm the publisher of the Lead Lag Report and a special guest for the hour who's very well known in the uh, in the value space, Tobias Carlisle. So Tobias, for, for those that are not familiar uh, with your background, just set the stage a little bit. Talk about who you are, how you got involved in the markets, and how do you how do you in general look at uh, the way investing uh, should work? Yeah, thanks, Michael. I run the Acquirers Fund, which is an ETF, deep value ETF that invests in U.S. domestic equities and the the DEEP fund, D-E-E-P, so the ticket for the acquirers fund is ZIG, ticket for the DEEP fund is DEEP, and that's a smaller micro version of, of ZIG. I've been in the markets for about 20 years. I spent the first decade as uh, an attorney doing uh, mergers and acquisitions, private equity, and uh, some activist defense, and I've written a few books. Um so I, I, I've been through a very long period of, of rough performance for my value start, but it, it seems to have turned the corner over the last sort of two years. So it's been a much more pleasant time to be in the markets for me. Okay, so the, there's a couple of directions I want to take it because I think everybody here is probably sick and tired of hearing about this growth versus value momentum uh, rotation that seems to be happening. First, I want you to define how how you think about value because traditionally when you look at sort of the institutional landscape values i think much more driven by sector allocation right growth is tech value is more financials materials energy how do you think about how value should be defined yeah that's that's a i think that that's a it's a byproduct of the fact that the academic definition of value has been a sort of price to book idea and the academics like it because that book value doesn't vary much from quarter to quarter where you know, earnings can be quite volatile and other flow measures can be quite volatile. But that's certainly not the way that I think about it. You know, you could you can easily construct a value portfolio that is equal weight across all of the industries and you still find the same effect. The cheaper stocks inside each industry tend to outperform the more expensive stocks. So the, the definition of value varies from, from investor to investor. There will be some who will purely use that sort of price to book value, although there aren't very many around anymore. It just hasn't worked for such a long period of time. And there are problems with the definition of, of book value. I think most people are doing a little bit more work than that. And they're trying to figure out, you know, what these things are worth on an intrinsic value basis, maybe much more the way that 
Warren Buffett would, where we're looking at the stream of cash flows going out as far as we can figure it out and then trying to discount that back, assuming some mean reversion in the performance of the business as much as there's mean reversion in the performance of the stock prices too. So I have this deeper value strategy to make it distinct from what Buffett's doing, which is more of a franchise sort of, he's looking for businesses that are what he describes as wonderful businesses that can compound at high rates for an extended period of time. Whereas I'm looking for things that are, I still think that they're sound, safe on a balance sheet basis, plenty of cash flow and, and good cash conversion. So their, their income turns into cash, but they may, but they might be a little bit more cyclical. So I like to find things that, uh, in a cyclical trough, and they're discounted from that value at the bottom of a cyclical trough. And so that might mean that we're in some heavier industries, although uh, haven't been more recently. So part of this is about predictability of, of cash flows. Are there certain industries which are more predictable in terms of cash flows? I mean, tech, you can argue, is not as predictable unless it's the big cap tech. But, but I have to assume there are certain industries that are more apt to sort of that extrapolation of cash flows and others. You've got these competitive dynamics in many industries that mean that they compete so ferociously for the money coming into the industry that it's hard for them to earn enough of a return on what they have invested in the business. And then you have other industries where uh, the competition, they're just a little bit more stable. There's not as much turnover. The bigger names are more established and um, they tend to be a little bit more predictable software. Tech hasn't typically been one of the more predictable industries, but it has over the last decade become more that software as a service, recurring revenue, all of that stuff is very attractive to investors and, you know, including value investors. The problem is that the multiples that you've had to pay for those things have been so high. Most deeper value guys have avoided all of that stuff. But, you know, with some of those things coming back, it's possible some of those names get picked up. And I've certainly got some older tech you know, I've got some dot-com 1.0 tech in my portfolio where they're using those cash flows to buy back shares. They're still earning pretty good money on what they've got invested in the business. They've still got very wide margins. Um, it's just that they don't have the top line growth anymore. So the, the business is still very good. It's just that they're shrinking. The market's selling them to liquidate because they're at such a big discount to what they're worth. And so they're shrinking their share cap, share count. Um, over time, and that's why they're attractive to me. The things that I tend to own have either they have, you know, they're sort of under leveraged. They either have cash on the balance sheet or they have the capacity to borrow to buy something in the industry. And often the, the industry is itself in some, um, not necessarily distress, but it's in a down cycle, which means that. A lot of the marginal players aren't making much money and there's only a handful that are doing well. And I want to be in those names because those are the ones that tend to be able to do acquisitions and hopefully they're good acquisitions because you're at that down cycle in the industry. But there's nothing more frustrating than having a position in a company that's got that pristine balance sheet and then they go and overpay for something trying to either grow themselves out of, you know, they've just, they're a little bit too short term. The management knows that they can buy something and it will be sort of accretive um, rather than what I don't care so much about accretion. I prefer sort of a discount to intrinsic value, but they, you know, that was that, that old game of, of accretive acquisitions was like a conglomerate game in the sixties where 
you could buy a slower growing, less good business and use stock, and that would be accretive to earnings, but it's not necessarily improving the value of the business. So it, it's a case by case basis for me. I, I'm not opposed to them at all. I don't have a preference for one over the other. I just I just want them to be typically operating the same way that I would operate, which would be if the stock is really cheap and you know your business well and you're and you're generating lots of cash flow, you should you should be buying back stock. But if there's a competitor there who you can take out, who you can who gives you some additional scale and you can do it at a good value, then that that's also a good thing from my perspective. I don't use momentum in value. Uh, I'm purely approaching these things the way that the old school value guys did, which is to try and figure out what it's worth, what it will be worth in three to five years in the future and what a reasonable return is from here until that point. Um, I have in the past shorted and I have used momentum in the shorting process because it's just one of the, the nature of shorting. You can be short. I think David Einhorn or someone like that pointed out that something that is two times overvalued is no less silly when it becomes three times overvalued. Once they sort of get unmoored from their underlying values and things get popular, they there's no reason why it can't keep on running up, and that's that's a problem if you short these names that are otherwise pretty junky. They've got junky balance sheets and negative cash flow. Uh, they need to raise money at some point, but you know if the market believes in them, then they can keep on running up thirty percent a year for sort of for a very long period of time. So I have uh, used momentum in that instance just to make sure that the the market sort of sees what I am seeing, and it's the the, the stock is starting to break down, but I don't short anymore and I don't use momentum on the long side. I think that the, the research on that is pretty compelling if, if you wanted to use it. But I think that the what the guys like uh, Wes Gray, um, who runs uh, Alpha Architect, I think what their view has been is that you could use, you could look at, say, earnings momentum, but you get uh, a, a sufficiently good price signal or a better, a better signal from price. So, the earnings momentum doesn't add anything. It's it's prices enough, and I have various different ways of assessing the quality of the price momentum. But I don't do that stuff, and I, I, I and I love doing the little comparisons of this market to other markets. Um, I'm always a little bit cautious though, because nothing is ever, you know, nothing's ever identical to uh, another period in the market. They they're always sufficiently different that I think you can be tripped up if you if you're too slavishly following one. But I think it's it's pretty clearly it it looks to me it's either sort of a dot commy peak, although we're now sort of well and truly. So I think that Arc, as the as as an example of that's that's uh, that's a great uh, one to run against mine because we're 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 completely different portfolios. And when I was short in Zig. I was short a lot of the ARC names just because that was, um, you know, they meet those criteria of not earning a lot of money. Um, they might have had some top-line growth, but none of it was ever translating into cash flow growth and they're issuing a lot of stock at the same time. So I tended to be short those names. Um, and that that was painful for a little while until about February 12 last year. And since February 12, everybody knows there's been that enormous wreck through all of those names, they're down sort of 75 to 80%, depending on the name. Um, and uh, when we look back through historical time periods that look like that, it either looks like 
the dot com crash. Uh, that's the way that began, and then that became systemic, and that went through the entire the entirety of the market, including spy. Or you could compare that to say uh, the Nifty Fifty, where it was a similar idea. And a lot of the, the thing that a lot of people miss about the dot com crash is it was very similar to the Nifty Fifty as well. It wasn't just dot coms; it was other names like Walmart got very expensive, GE got very expensive. All these names were just can't miss names that they were very good businesses. They are very good businesses. They just got too expensive. And very good businesses can spend 10 or 15 years drifting sideways as the underlying business catches up. So the business can be still roaring ahead, growing consistently through the entire period. It's just they're too expensive. And so I wonder if that happens to some of the you know, some of the, I think some of the fang names are now, are now blowing up a little bit. That's Facebook's blown up, Netflix is blown up. Uh, I still think Microsoft looks cheapish, not cheapish rather, but not 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 excessive where it is. And Google's probably cheapish. So it's something like a, a pretty traditional overvalued market, I think, in in many different names, um, with some. Some of the more high-profile pro- high stuff being very overvalued and starting to break down. I think that what tends to happen is that they do tend to become systemic after a while. People, you know, one of the amazing things is Arc has still been raising money. Arc was raising money through January. We haven't seen what they've done in February yet, but they were raising money through through January despite the performance. I think that people are so conditioned to buy the dip that they have been um, tending to do that over and over again. And it's worked out at every point. And the question is whether it continues to work. I sort of feel we, we might be at the end of the road for that stuff. I, I feel like we're so far now into this tech wreck. And it does seem to be impacting the market, even though it's, there's, there's idiosyncratic reasons. It's Ukraine or it's whatever it is that sort of creates the volatility in the market. But the market becomes fragile and that volatility appears and then it becomes systemic. So I suspect we're probably uh, into a new sort of Mega Bear, probably. I am curious, Tobias, if any of those ARC names, given how much they've gone down, if if they now reach sort of the the deep value sort of quadrant or whatever you want to call it, right? I mean, you know, at some point, price resolves valuation, right? Where that is, we can debate. But do you think that these areas are still overvalued, given the bear market that really started back in February last year? We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Gaia here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report/leadlaglive and get an exclusive thirty percent off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the lead lag report. And now, back to our discussion. The problem is that they all tend to be fairly early in their life cycles. So they're not businesses that you can get enough of a view on what they look like when they when they stabilize a little bit more. I can see that, you know, I, I, I've read some of the, the, the theses that are out there for these names and they and they, they, they follow that path where they have to they have to dominate the niche that they're in. They have to spend money to dominate that niche. Once they do that, they'll increase their prices or, or, or stop stop spending on customer acquisition costs, and that will make the 
the margins will look good and they'll make a lot of money and therefore they are the next Amazon. And in many instances, that's not going to be true. In some instances, that will be true. I think it's really hard to decide which ones are which. So I tend to be an investor in things that have been around for a little bit longer where they've achieved that level of scale where we know what the business looks like in its steady state. It's a little bit easier to project where it's going to be over the next two or three or five years. And for whatever reason, they get too cheap. And so Lockheed Martin was one last year. I was talking about Lockheed Martin. I didn't think it was, it wasn't screamingly undervalued, but it was definitely undervalued for what it is. It seems to be one of the things that happens with a name like Lockheed. Anytime there's a new administration, people get worried about whether the new administration is going to spend on defence the way the previous administration has until all the defence names get cheap. No administration has ever spent less than the preceding administration. And then there's some international event like the Ukraine. And so Lockheed works well for a period of time like that. So that's that's tends to be sort of the name that I'm in, which would mean that I'm just not able to make assessments about those ARC names. It's, it's possible that there, there is some value there. And certainly if they get very beaten up, and I, I suspect that they will, because I remember 2002 to 2007, tech was very, very uncool. People, it was very cringy for a long time there. People didn't want to be anywhere near tech because they all had vivid memories of what happened in the dot-com. And coincidentally, or, or as a result, there was a whole lot of tech that got really cheap through that period. So I suspect that that happens again. I, I don't know, though, it's, and we're not quite there yet, but that's, that's sort of what I think is going to happen. We'll, we'll get to that point where no one will even acknowledge that they were in tech and that'll be a good time to buy it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's when there's capitulation probably in ARC where they're getting net redemptions, which you haven't. Have you guys seen that? Have you? Uh, I just said the last thing I saw was that she was still raising. Yeah, so it's unusual, right? I mean, it's rare, but typically, as most people know, assets follow performance. So if you have a drawdown right. performance of a fund, right, then you have people selling with a lag. It's rare that people actually uh, buy into a drawdown the way that they have with ARC. It's actually pretty uh, remarkable. All right, so so we're often uh, we often hear this term value trap to bias. Um, what makes something a a value trap, and how do you how do you know if you were just very early or if you're wrong in an investment thesis when it comes to value investing? It's it's probably the question that I get the most, and it's it's kind of my favorite question. I I hate to say this, but sometimes I think the only way to tell whether it's a value trap is sort of about a year after you buy it, if it's still deteriorating and it's below where you bought it, it's probably a value trap. Prospectively, I think it's really hard to tell. Because the way that I think about it is you have these – many of the things that we're looking at, the market has taken a look at them and decided that the state of affairs that preceded the current situation – so Facebook is a really good example. If face, Facebook is quantitatively undervalued based on all of its trailing metrics, there's no question about that. I'd say it's like half price, maybe maybe even less than that. The question is not, is it undervalued based on trailing metrics, but is it going to be able to perform in the future the way that it has in the past? And there are lots of reasons why that's probably not going to be the case. Fewer people are going with Facebook, although the, the, the data seems to be still pretty good. for, for the, they, People still spend enormous amounts of time on Facebook or Instagram or WhatsApp or any of their other properties. But that's a, it's a good example of 
the business isn't as good as it used to be. And now they're trying to transition to this metaverse thing, which is scaring people. Um, and when, you know, these spaces like MySpace, when MySpace died, nobody goes there anymore. Is it possible it could happen to Facebook as well? What will the future look like for Facebook if that is the case? Is Facebook a value trap as a result? I think it's really, really hard to tell at this point. But I, I think that across a portfolio, if you have enough names that look like that, the instances where the market's estimation is wrong and it's undervalued pay off so much that the portfolio itself will do quite well, despite the fact that in many instances, the names that we put into the portfolio will end up being value traps that are just that the market's assessment was right. And so the valuation was sort of roughly right. With, with something like Facebook, it has to diminish quite a lot. It's still an extraordinarily good business or it's, its recent prints are still extraordinarily good. The question is whether it can continue to look that way into the future. Um, and I, I, I honestly don't know the answer, but I think it's sort of almost paid to take the punt at this point. And so that, that, if it turns out to be a value trap, then everybody will say, well, of course, it was a value trap. It was obvious that that was the case from the outset, which is why it was priced the way that it was. But if it turns out that it can recover, then the, the turnaround in the stock price should be dramatic. And, and so uh, I don't know which one it is, but I think that if, if you have enough of them in the portfolio, when, you're, when it turns out that you know, you're wrong, the downside shouldn't be too great because it's still, it's still a pretty good business. It's still got lots of cash on the balance sheet. It's still going to do okay. It just may not do as well as it did. If it turns out that the market's strong, it'll dramatically re-rate and the portfolio should work. And so that's sort of the way that I approach them. What it means is that I will inevitably buy value traps and I'm sort of trying to do it because there are points where the, the assessment is, is wrong and, and it's not, in fact, a value trap, and that's when you, that's when you make all the money. Because ultimately, it's what management does with the, with the valuation. So there's lots of things that I'm looking for, and that, that happens all the time. That We put a position on, it goes down, the underlying deteriorates, and we have to make that assessment again. I think that you want to be a value buyer, but you want to be a quality holder. That's sort of the way that I think about it. And then what that means is that a quality holder will hold probably beyond on the upside where intrinsic value would be. Um, but on the downside, I'm looking for deterioration in the business. I'm looking for deterioration in the financial statements, deterioration in um, the balance sheet particularly. Um, those are the things that I think uh, indicate that something is going wrong and that you should probably be out. And it would not and if the if the stock is flat, I don't care. If the stock is down, I don't care. If the stock is undervalued, I don't care. If the if the business is deteriorating, then you, I I don't want to be in there anymore. So that's it's it's uh it's not a difficult decision often because there are other there are always better new opportunities that are that are, that appear. So I I have things that I want to put in the portfolio. So it becomes necessary to shift the stuff that's not working out. And put something in that is. How um, how concentrated of a portfolio do you run to us? Zig is thirty names, and uh, Deep is a hundred. I like to be a little bit more. I think that's you know it's 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 a funny 
that, that that's what the holdings are. I regard that as being a pretty good balance between it gives you enough diversification across industries and names, uh, and I think it's enough concentration. I tend to be less concentrated in the small cap portfolio for a number of reasons. One, they're just smaller names. They're very, very volatile. They trade all over the place. Two, the balance sheets aren't as strong as the mid-cap and large-cap. They don't have professional managers in there. Um, but, you know, mid-cap companies can have good balance sheets and professional management, and they're looking to grow into large-cap. Small-cap can be uh, an entrepreneur who's listed a company and who hasn't run a public company before knows about the business but doesn't fully understand all of the levers that a manager of a public company can pull, including buybacks and, and things like that. And so I I think that you'd want to have a smaller exposure to each of those names. And what we're really relying on there is more the fact that deeply undervalued names and small caps do tend to outperform over the very long term, and we're trying to avoid any idiosyncratic risk. With the mid-cap and large-cap, I think that there are fewer opportunities, so we need to be a little bit more concentrated and the names tend to be, as I was saying before, they're just better managed for the most part. And I'm looking for the quantitative the quantitative evidence of good management, which is, as I was saying before, something if they're cheap and they're 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 cash flowing, they should be buying back stock unless they've got some sort of near-term need for cash. And then I would be nervous if something had had uh near-term needs for cash that weren't obvious particularly when they've got a very liquid balance sheet. So I love the fact that, you know, Zuck has been buying back stock. I don't own Facebook and I don't know whether I will end up owning it or not. I'm just sort of thinking about it a lot at the moment. And I, and I, I like the fact that they're doing a, a buyback. I think that they've acknowledged reality, which is that the market is telling them to liquidate. Um, that's telling them that they're too big for the opportunity. And I think that they're listening to the market. So that's that's a good indication that, that that's a good management. How quantitative is value investing versus qualitative because you talk about management and you know companies listening right i mean that's not something you can you can put into numbers exactly so so talk about sort of that that interplay of art versus science i tend to be very quantitative i tend to look mostly at the numbers uh, almost entirely at the numbers I, I don't care what management says at all and I, there will be people out there who'll be value investors who are 100 the other way they they don't look at what the current numbers look like they're listening to management they want to work out where the business is going to be in 15 years' time, and that's how they're doing their assessment. Whereas I want to know near-term where the business is going to be, and I think that the best way to find that out is by looking at the financial statements and ignoring what management says. There's really no fixed way of doing it, and the, the discretionary qualitative guys think that I'm nuts for doing it the way that I do it, and I think that they're nuts for doing it the way that they do it. Because I think that you know, you don't become CEO of a company that's a mid-cap or a large-cap without being really charismatic and being a really good sales guy and saying exactly the right thing to exactly the right person. And I'm as susceptible as anybody else when a charismatic person tells me something that I want to hear about a business. It does make me, I feel the FOMO. I want to go and buy some of the business and, and watch them do it. It's just that I've been tricked so many times that I would prefer to just sort of fool myself, look at the financial statements and see, does this thing have the firepower to do a buyback? Are they cheap enough to do the buyback? Are they, in fact, doing the buyback? If they're doing all those things, buyback is a very powerful message because it's it tells you all of those things. They have the money. They are cheap. Management's listening. So um, I, I like buybacks. I like 
businesses that throw off cash. They don't necessarily have to have particularly impressive top line growth. They don't care really what the top line is doing, provided that they've got good margins um, and they're, they're, they're doing something about the, the, the stumble that they've had. And so that's, that's, um, that's the quantitative assessment of what's happening. And then the qualitative is usually, you know, different people can, reasonable people can disagree about somebody saying something and what that means for the business. And so I, I just have to, I don't, I don't use it in my, in my process at all. Would you say there are more value opportunities post COVID than, than pre COVID or is it muddy simply because there's so many zombie companies that are out there that probably are legitimate value traps? You know, that's an, it's an interesting question. I think it's, it's very hard at the moment to get a bead on some of these companies that have had an unusual period of time. They've either had a good two years or a bad two years. And the question is, is that, is that, are they doing really well because there's a supply chain issue for someone else? Are they doing really well because there's been this flood of cash to, uh, to, the, to the average man? Are they doing really well because, um, you know, they're selling something that's, like, that's COVID-related? Or are they hurt by those things? So I think it's 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 a tougher time to work out what the near-term performance of these businesses means for their future. And I've got lots of things in the portfolio that, or lots of things in my screens that I'm not entirely sure which way ultimately this goes. I don't know whether it's a secular change. Is it? Are people going back to the offices after spending two years at home, uh, or is everybody going to adopt? A, is everybody going to adopt this hybrid model, which will mean that there'll be fewer people in cities, fewer people in high-rises. High-rises won't command the money that they have in the past. I, I, I honestly don't know. I think you've just got to sort of chart the middle course, which is what I've been trying to do, just assuming that probably the world roughly goes back to where it has been, but not all the way. And if the price is still okay on that basis, then then sort of moving forward, but it's I'm having a, it's, I'm finding it really difficult. When I wrote Quantitative Value, which came out in 2012, um, we thought that we were approaching that value problem from the perspective of, you know, what would a value investor who could behave in a quantitative way, how would they go about constructing a portfolio? The, 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 uh, AQR wrote QMJ, the quality minus junk, identify that quality minus junk factor. I think their paper came out in 2013. And their paper includes a lot of the the criteria that we used as quantitative value investors. And they've decided that they're, and, and probably it makes sense, that, that, that they're in fact quality factors. And so what I think of as value factors, and I guess they're not, they're not I think that they're the way a value investor would go about doing their investment. So I don't think so much in terms of factors. I just think of it as the way that an investor would approach these problems. We define them as quantitative value. They have subsequently been defined as sort of quality factors. But people assume that when you say deep value and you're quantitative, what you're talking about is purely some sort of multiple analysis and you're using price earnings or price to book or whatever the case may be. But in quantitative value, we went through many different – we did look at price multiples and we tested price multiples 
but that's one chapter of a book. I think it has 12 or 13 chapters in it. And the other chapters deal with things like, you know, do you, you want to, you, you don't want to buy things that are frauds. You don't want to buy things that are earnings manipulators because earnings manipulation is a gateway drug to fraud. Uh, you don't want to buy things with financial distress because financial distress is also a gateway drug to fraud and earnings manipulation because companies that are doing well don't need to manipulate their earnings. You know, So there are quantitative metrics for doing, for making those assessments. You can talk about a Benish score for earnings manipulation or an Altman Z score, which is a uh, which is a financial distress score, or you look at Piotrowski score. So we looked at all of those, and then we many of these things were written a long time ago, and the metrics don't apply as well to modern businesses. So they were written for manufacturing businesses a long time ago, and they're less useful for different, more sophisticated, different, more sophisticated businesses that we see today. So. Um, we use those things. We've modified them a little bit, and I use them in my process to sort of make sure that the universe is investable. So I narrow my universe down to an investable universe, and then inside that investable universe, look for the better quality stuff. And quality includes cash flow conversion. So, how much of their revenues and earnings actually turn into cash flow? Do they in fact turn into cash flow? Um, what do they? Uh, what sort of margins do they get? Because that's a very good indication. A bigger margin means that they're controlling costs on one side and controlling and, and charging more for their good on the other side. So that that wide margin is a is a good indication of a good business. And then returns on invested capital too. Um, I think it's highly mean reverting and it and it has proven to be in the past. We've been through this interesting period of time, and I don't know if it's very low interest rates or what it is, but margins have tended to be much wider than they have in the past and have stayed very wide. Profit margins are unusually um, non-mean reverting for sort of the last 10 or 15 years, uh, where they have been quite mean reverting in the past. I think the average profit margin has been about 6%. I think we're sitting more than, we might be like 13 or 14% last time I looked. That's typically been... That's way past any previous peak. So that's that's another problem of of doing the valuations at the moment. So the way that the way that I approach the, the sort of the quantitative investment, and I think that to be fair, this is the way that AQR and a lot of other firms do this. I don't think anybody's purely a value um, multiple or ratio investor. I think that most people are doing a lot of work on the on the quality of the business as well. But we we're looking for we're looking to avoid the things that are obvious frauds or earnings manipulators because they trigger one of these one of these little metrics. Then we're looking for the better quality stuff that generates real cash flow, has good margins, reasonable returns on invested capital that we think are sustainable. We look for sustainable growth in those businesses, and uh, we, we we try to avoid stuff that has value destroying growth because that that certainly exists. And then we're trying to buy it cheap. We're trying to buy it for less than it's worth, so it'll give us a reasonable return over a period of time. Um, some of that stuff doesn't neatly fit into factors. Some of it does. We're probably – well, I think when Morningstar uh, takes a look at the portfolios, the things that we score highest on are value, which is understandable, but quality also. So the portfolios are value and quality together. 
We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. I'd like to hear what combination of qualitative factors makes an invincible company. <laughs> yeah, so this is an idea that I've been working on a little bit. I think that there are globally there might be three or four hundred companies that have just existed for a long period of time. They they um, they probably will exist almost through any whatever happens to them. They're, they're sort of the things that I have discussed. They're just businesses that have operated at these very high levels, very large margin, very wide margins, um, pretty consistent growth for very long periods of time, and that they will continue to operate that way into the future. I, I think that I call them invincible because I think that there are uh, there are lots of companies out there that are fragile, and so I think as, as hard as it is to I don't think it's possible to actually find an invincible company, but I do think that it is possible to identify fragile companies, and those are things that, you know, they're, they're, they're carrying too much debt, or they've got they've got the sort of business that, um, you know, if we go through a downturn, uh, they'll be in a lot of trouble regardless of what the balance sheet looks like. So I just try to avoid those kinds of businesses because I never. I always assume that there's a bad time coming in the market, and I really think the way that investors have performed in the past is not so much to do particularly well in the good times, but it's just to survive the bad times. And that includes the times when your your own investment style is, is out of favour, and that can be a very long period of time. So I think value has just gone through this exceptionally long period, maybe the longest in the data that we have going back 200 years where value hasn't worked. And as a result, a lot of value guys have left. I think that the the staying power of the ones who are there means that if when we're getting these better times for value portfolios, that's when you that's when you perform. That's when you look really good. And uh, the only way you get to be there is if you in fact survive and you, you're there for those periods of time. So that's sort of mostly what I'm focused on. I just want to make sure that I survive the bad times, so that I'm there when the good times happen. The thing that really distinguishes Buffett, I think, from anybody else is that he can sit not doing anything for an exceptionally long period of time and then find an opportunity and just deploy, I think he put a third of Berkshire's capital or 40% of Berkshire's investment capital to work. Buffett is known for the stuff that he does do, but really what is the thing that makes him who he is is all the stuff that he doesn't do. You know, he doesn't invest in. He doesn't really make many mistakes. Like everybody will say, well, IBM was a mistake, but even in IBM, he hasn't lost an enormous amount of money. Maybe holding onto Coke was too long was a mistake, but he's still been clipping dividends out of Coke for a really long period of time. So Buffett is the um, is the avatar, or he's the the north star for me. That's what I'm. That's the level that I'm trying to get to, but. The difference between Buffett and I is, you know, vast intellect difference and uh, 
a vast um, experience difference. And I, I just I, I think that the um, it's good to have somebody out there like that to aim at and to uh, to study. And I, you know, part of part of his success has been it's not just his ability to cite stocks and to do all of that that thing where he you know, doesn't invest. As I was just discussing, it's it's the structure that he's built. Berkshire Hathaway is a phenomenal structure that gives him the float, which gives him the non-recourse leverage. Um, he's the majority shareholder in it, so he can't be pushed out even if he underperforms or even if he doesn't do anything for, a, for an extended period of time. All of those decisions that he's made along the way have made Berkshire Hathaway and him invincible, which is sort of where I got the idea. Um, so I, 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 I'm, I stand in awe of the, the you know, he's a 90-something-year-old man. The, the intellect is still razor sharp. He's built something that is truly extraordinary. What can you say? Hats off to him. I've set the, the way that the portfolio managers was set at the beginning, and it's 30 names equal weight rebalance quarterly. So that, that the reason that it, it operates that way is because um, I think you could be in a good name that goes down that ultimately will succeed. And one of the nice things about um, something that is equal weight is if the name trades down when we come to a rebalance that I still want in the portfolio, we will naturally have to buy more of it. And so we're t- we tend to rebalance down into things that go down and something that runs up will be trimming as it goes along, provided that we um, continue to think that the underlying name is worth holding. You get this, it's called the Shannon's Demon, Shannon's Demon effect, where you're adding to things that are adding to losers and uh, taking away from winners. There's some research that shows that you can generate about 20% of your performance, so of your total performance over an extended period of time, comes from rebalancing and rebalancing into names that are going down and, and away from names that are going up. So I I, um, I like that feature, and it, it's, a, it's a big difference with Buffett's portfolio. He will buy a chunk of something and then never sell it and never – he may buy more of it if it goes against him. I, I do think they – I don't think they trim very much, but uh, the guys who manage portfolios in there, um, besides Buffett, I think they do tend to sell it, trade around a little bit more. Um, the way that he's, the way that he approaches it is appropriate for the structure that he has, that insurance flood, uh, and they have cash flows coming in all the time. You know, my portfolio is slightly different to that because it's it's an ETF. Um, the ETF can have flows both ways, but that that's not such an issue for me. That's more an issue for the portfolio managers who have to who have to deal with the flows. I get to set the portfolio, and um, it, it it trades regardless of what the flows are. The portfolio shape doesn't change. Um, but I, I like that I like that feature of it being able to buy and sell to to buy more of something that's going down to buy less of, to to. to to sell down something that's going up. I do think that over time that generates more return than simply sitting in a name and never touching it. You know, Apple probably is really a Buffett-type stock. Like, it's got a great brand. It's got super fat margins. It, it's funny. It gets cheap about every three years. With it. Or it used to get cheap every three years or so with the iPhone cycle. I think it got, it got cheap in 2000. And, 
2013 and then cheap in 2016 and then cheap in 2019. So we'll probably get another go at it somewhat sometime this year or next year. Or maybe that maybe now that Buffett's hold, holding it, the, the cat's completely out of the bag. I've written about it. I think I wrote about it in Acquirers Multiple, just that it was one of those names that it, it's, it continues to be a great business, but that sometimes it's expensive and sometimes it's cheap. And if you buy it when it's cheap, then it's tended to work out over time. All right. So the last question from my end, a lot of people talk about catalysts as a reason to buy. Is is there some kind of catalyst when it comes to you know, prospective value investment that you, you want to see before you do an actual buy? Yeah, I like that question. Uh, I've thought about it a lot. I, I think that ultimately you, you tend to pay for catalysts um, because everybody's waiting for management to wake up and do the buyback or whatever the case may be. And so um, when the announcement gets made, then the stock trades up and the, the the little discount that you had for the uncertainty is gone. So I tend to be, I think if it's cheap and it's got the conditions are there for the catalyst to be implemented or the catalyst to occur, I tend to buy and not and not wait for the catalyst because um, when it does finally get announced, you know, it's one of the it's one of the crazy things about the markets that if I I still don't really understand how it works, but you get a there, we go through these periods of time where there's this uncertainty in the markets and the stock, you know, it can be in individual names or the entire index. The entire index or the individual name trades down on the basis of this uncertainty, and the uncertainty includes within it this range of outcomes that includes the very worst possible scenario and the very best possible scenario. And then when the uncertainty goes away because we get some resolution to it, even if it's the very worst possible scenario, the stock tends to trade up because the stock market prefers a worst-case scenario to uncertainty. And I don't really understand why that's the case, but I've seen it happen so many times now that I think that you uncertainty is your friend as an investor. You want to be you know, investing into uncertainty, knowing that even if the worst possible outcome occurs, it's probably it's probably going to trade up on that news. Uh, what's the biggest piece of advice you can give when it comes to bottom-up investing? Meaning, to me, it's very simple, right? It's don't look at a chart. But I, I'm curious. Yeah, <laughs> that's really, a good one. Bias, right? No, really. But, but, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, bottom-up investing, I would say you never want to get taken out of the game. You, you want to do all of your work on the survivability of the thing that you're investing and the survivability for yourself. So, this is why this is where the invincible idea comes from. That if you make sure that the thing that you're investing into doesn't have any of the fragile elements to it that that make it um, make it like make put the worst case scenario, which would be out of business, in its range of outcomes. If that is a possibility, then it's probably not something you want to be in because there, there, every business gets its fair share of good and bad luck. Uh, good businesses, when they get bad luck, you know, maybe they have a bad year or so, but they turn around and they keep on going. Bad businesses, when they get that bad luck, uh, you know, they go into bankruptcy and the equity holders get wiped out. So I'm always trying to take that possibility off the table. And I figure that provided I don't blow up, provided the names in the portfolio don't blow up, over time you get the good luck and it just kind of takes care of itself. And so that's that's sort of my approach. And that's I think that's the way to do it. Yep, makes a lot of sense. Everybody here, please make sure you follow Tobias. And if you have any feedback or suggestions, never hesitate to send me a direct message. I do my best to 
engage with as many of you as possible. So thank you, Tobias, for the hour. I really do appreciate it. And hopefully you found some value from it as well. Yeah, very much so. Thanks for having me, Michael. Thanks for having me, gents. Thank you, everybody. Cheers. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.